Well, it's been some time since we've been in the text of the pastoral letters together. And so we will be picking up where we left off, which is 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll be reading all of chapter 1 together tonight. You can uh, hear these words from the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For, the, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher and as an apostle and as a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day that has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit which is entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered in Ephesus. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider your words together tonight, we pray that you would help us to focus our minds and our hearts to hear you as you speak to us. Lord, would you help us to see clearly your word for what it is, as a light for our life, as a guiding factor for us. And Lord, would you edify us and build us up, build up your people by your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, like I said, it's been a little bit of time since we've been in the pastoral letters, but you've probably uh, already caught a good sense of what the first pastoral letter was about, 1 Timothy. It's all about, let's say, how do you order the church well so that the church endures well? And we kind of frame that under the heading of the healthy church. So what does the healthy church look like? It's a church that's, in some sense, battle-proof. In some sense, it's got its witness protected by its conduct and by its doctrine. And 2 Timothy, much like 1 Timothy, has this goal in mind. In fact, all of chapter 1, why we're looking at it together, tells us that Paul is writing this letter and why Paul is writing this letter. 
So first we know that it's Paul. I'm not going to argue that very much. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul's writing this, and there are many people who would dispute that, many people who say Paul did not write this, but there's plenty of witness and reason to believe Paul, in fact, did write it, and that's what people believe for nearly 2,000 years. So Paul wrote this, and not only that, but Paul's telling us why he wrote it, which is found basically in verses 3 through the end of chapter 1, which is in verse 18. So what's the setting of this letter? Why does he write 2 Timothy after writing 1 Timothy? 2 Timothy is written during a totally different stage in Paul's life. So 1 Timothy is written after Paul has appointed Timothy as the pastor of a church in Ephesus. And he's writing to encourage him, probably because he's heard about some false teaching cropping up in that church. And so he writes to encourage Timothy to hold fast, to rebuke those false teachers, and to hold fast to true and sound teaching. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1. Well, 2 Timothy is written not really because of any pressing heresy, but primarily because Paul is at the end of his life. So Paul is probably in his second imprisonment in Rome at this point, which means it's, uh, he's, he's on the eve of death. And actually, as he tells us at the end of the letter, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and I know that my time to depart will soon come. So he tells us that in, at the end of 2 Timothy. So he's writing this because these are his last words. This is his last instruction to Timothy. And uh, I, th- I think there's nothing really that captures the spirit of this better than a quote from a man named Samuel Johnson. He says it this way, Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows that he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. His point is, when you know your days are numbered, it kind of uh, it, it evaporates all the stuff that you think would be nice to do in life or all the things you would like to maybe do with your life, and it kind of focuses on what are the most important things. And you all know stories like this, someone who finds out they have two years left to live or six months left to live. What do they do? Well, they start living their life as they should have been living it the whole time in many cases. They spend time with friends and family. They invest in their loved ones. They, spend, they, they quit that job that they've hated their whole life, and they go and invest time with their family, right? Yeah, the people do things that are important to them when they know they only have a certain amount of time left. In a small sense, you might have all experienced this in the last week or so when you were on vacation or visiting your family, right? When you're there and you know you're going to be there for a week, you're like, oh, we got a whole week to do stuff. And then you realize, you wake up one morning and you're like, this is, this is the last day that I have, the last full day before I have to travel back home. And you think to yourself, well, now I need to spend my time more wisely. So you, you, we all get a sense of what it means to have limited time and to focus ourselves because of that. So Paul, with limited time, is telling Timothy a really important message. And that message is really simple. I've distilled it down into the title of the teaching, Follow the Pattern. So what's Timothy supposed to do? Paul's on his deathbed. Uh, He's on his his last couple of days, last couple of weeks on earth. What's he want Timothy to hear? He wants Timothy to know that Timothy should listen and obey and follow after the pattern that Paul has set. And not just the pattern that Paul has set. Actually, Paul lists in this first chapter several people who have also gone before Timothy to show him what it is like to be a faithful Christian for the long haul. And so as we consider chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, I want you to think about your own heritage as a Christian. So perhaps you were raised in a Christian home. Perhaps your parents raised you in a Christian faith. Perhaps you grew up knowing what it was like to at least know what a Christian worldview is like, or what the Bible is, or you were, you were privileged to have access to that information. In, in some sense, that's a heritage which has been given to you, which means who you are as a Christian is more than just your own mental assent to believing things about Jesus. 
Often, who you are as a Christian, where you're at now in your life, represents not just your own self-determined will, but many other people's investment into you to get you to where you are. Think about where many of you would be if your parents had not done what they did for you to get you here. Think about where many of you would be if you didn't have a close friend or someone who cared deeply for you, who mentored you and cared for you and taught you and discipled you in, in many close ways. Think about what would be of your Christian faith if you did not have such people who modeled for you what it is like to be a Christian. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in here. So you, you kind of get the spirit of that. He says, uh, he, he's talking to Timothy, and he says in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, your true faith, which is a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother and also in your mother, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So when Paul's telling Timothy, hey, Timothy, hold fast to this faith, follow the pattern, as he says later, guard the deposit, he's not saying that in a vacuum. Timothy, you've mentally ascended to these truths, therefore keep at it because you are a, will, a very strong, will-powered person. He's saying, remember what other people invested into your life, what other people went before you as a motivation to endure. Perhaps you know what that was like when you might have been studying for finals in college, and you know what it is like when you're studying for a test, and you think, well, what would happen if I didn't study? What if I, what if I just bombed this exam, and I bombed all my classes, and I dropped out? And then you start thinking, well, what, might, what would my parents think about that? Because they've sacrificed quite a bit to get me to this point. What would my loved ones and those who've invested into me think about that? What would my professor who spent extra time in their office hours investing into me and helping me to study think about me if I did that kind of thing? In some sense, the legacy that we carry is a good motivation to keep at things. It's not some lesser means that is like non-spiritual because we're thinking about people and not God. It's a, it's a good thing to think about what other Christians have invested into us, what our parents and loved ones and other believers have invested as a motivation for us to endure in the faith. Think about what kind of shame you might bring upon the name of Christ if you did not hold fast to the witness that you have as a Christian. Think about what kind of shame it brings to the witness of Christ when people who ought to hold fast to the witness of Christ do not hold fast. Think about pastors and those who disqualify themselves from ministry and do so in a very public way. Well, they're not doing that in a vacuum. They're doing that in the context of other people who've invested their lives into those men who then disqualify themselves. Think about how bad that looks for not just them, but also for the people who invested into them. So when Paul is talking to Timothy here, he's not talking to him in a vacuum. Nor should you hear 2 Timothy chapter 1 in a vacuum, like you should believe and hold fast to the thing which you've always believed. You should hear it like, what would my mom and dad or that person who discipled me and led me to Christ, with their investment in mind, with their investment into me in mind, how should I act in this moment or in this circumstance or how should I endure faithfully to the end? I think it's a good motivation. So we, not just have that, we don't just have that motivation, but we also have those people as an example to us. When Paul says later in the text uh, that he is not ashamed of the gospel and now he's telling Timothy to follow this pattern, this is in uh, first in verse uh, 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Uh, that kind of has in mind not just doctrinal assent, but also behavior and belief. So think about 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says an elder who is going to be teaching in the church of God is to be qualified almost primarily by their conduct and action in life, uh, how they treat their loved ones at home, how they treat their children, how they treat their wife. These are all qualifying factors for an elder who are going to teach. Why? Because elders don't just teach uh, with their words. 
They also teach with their lives, with their examples, with the, with the kind of pattern they set forward for others. That's true for you as well. If you're discipling someone or you've been discipled, you don't just hear what people say, you also observe what people do. And in many cases, uh, this is how we learn things at the most basic level. So if you consider, for instance, uh, how you might learn uh, sounds. Uh, Calvin is currently in the phase of his life where he's learning a lot of sounds and words and all kinds of things like that. And most of that is not things that he invents himself. Those are things that he hears Tara and I say, and then he echoes those sounds back to us. And often he doesn't know what they mean. He's figuring out the context. He's figuring out what, the, what, what it means. But he's in many ways just mimicking what we're already doing. And in some, uh, some similar way, when you're a Christian, especially a young Christian, you don't necessarily understand all of the things that you do or all of the reasons why you do those things. In many ways, you're just echoing you're just patterning yourself after other people who you look up to and who are further along than you. So for instance, how do you know what forgiveness is as a Christian? Well, you don't necessarily need a full theological explanation of forgiveness, but perhaps you know what it is for someone to have been wronged and then to have forgiven someone else, someone who you look up to and, and admire. And you've seen them be wronged and then extend forgiveness and you go, oh, here's a picture of what forgiveness likes, a pattern to follow after. You don't need all the theology. I'm not saying the theology behind that is bad very good. It supports the pattern. But the pattern itself is also sufficient for us to learn and to be instructed. The pattern is, I would say, a necessary kind of instruction. Similarly with prayer. Uh, many of you have, I, actually I don't think any of you, I've never, attended a class where you learn what to pray, in what order to pray, or how to pray. How do most of us learn to pray? We see other Christians pray. We try it ourselves. And most of the time we end up sounding like the people we've heard pray for our whole lives. So many of you probably pray like your parents if you grew up in a Christian home. Or if you didn't, you pray like the people who prayed in front of you or around you or with you at first. That's a good thing because you're learning how to pray as a pattern following after the people who have gone before you. The point of saying all that is you don't just consider the people who've invested into you as a motivation to keep going. You also consider how you walk forward by their example that they set. So Paul sets himself before Timothy as one who is a pattern worthy of following. For instance, he says in verse 8 of chapter 1, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. How can Paul say that Timothy ought to share in the suffering? Well, because Paul is sharing in the suffering. Paul's currently in prison on account of the gospel. So Paul can rightly say to Timothy, follow my pattern. Testify about God and about the resurrection until they kill you. Keep going. A pretty strong thing to say for someone who's living it out, right? It's a lived example and it's words to follow. Um, and again, as I'm saying this, uh, think about who is that person in your life who's invested heavily into you and what would it be like for your parent or that person who's discipled you well, the, the mentor of your Christian walk, for them to say something like this to you, keep on in the faith and consider all that I've invested into you. Consider how I modeled Christianity for you. Consider how I modeled faith for you. Go forward in that vein. And so we can learn not just that we ought to go forward as a motivation, also that we have patterns worthy of following in many cases, and also we learn that there are some patterns that are not worth following, and Paul names them at the end of these verses. For instance, in verse 15, he says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. <laughs> now here Paul says, Hey, there's a whole bunch of people who are traveling with me. They are not patterns worth following. These people abandoned the faith. They walked away. He names some of them. He says there's Philegius and Hermogenes. 
But then here's another one who's worth following, a man named Onesiphorus in verse 16. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Paul told 1 Timothy in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And then he says, hey, here's Onesiphorus who was not ashamed. Here's a man who was not ashamed, a good example, a pattern worthy of following. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly. He found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all of the service that he rendered at Ephesus. So here Paul is giving what we would say are good and bad examples. It's a pretty effective way to instruct someone, right? You say, hey, here's what I'm telling you to do. Here's a good example of that thing. Here's a bad example of that thing. I'm thankful that Paul gives a lot more good examples in these opening verses than bad examples. And I'm thankful these examples are so, so close to home. So what do we do with this? Well, in part, as Christians, we ought to consider those who have invested into us, as I've already said. But not only that, we also ought to consider what kind of example we set for those who we will one day disciple. Perhaps you're a Christian and you've been privileged right now with being able to invest time into a younger believer, into a future generation of Christian. Well, what kind of pattern are you setting or are you building up in your own life and is that pattern a one that is worthy of following? Is that pattern one that is worthy of someone else to imitate? Is that pattern in keeping with your spiritual heritage as a Christian? And if you're thinking, well, I don't have that kind of person in my life right now, think about at some point in time, as a Christian, you likely will. It is, normal, it is very normal for Christians to have other Christians who follow after them. What kind of example will you set one day? And are you cultivating disciplines right now in your life? Are you learning right now in your life in such a way that you would be happy for someone else to pattern their life after yours? I'm not saying you have to think of yourself as like an influencer or someone who goes forward and throws themselves in front of people as someone who wants to influence others, often for financial gain or, or other reasons. I'm saying if someone says, I think you are someone who I want to have uh, direct uh, me and invest in me, would you feel qualified I'm not saying you're putting yourself in front of someone. I'm saying, would you feel comfortable with someone else patterning their life after yours? And if not, what are those areas that you would say, I wouldn't want them to imitate me in this? And might that inform how you go forward as a Christian currently and shape yourself into the pattern of Christ? Paul says elsewhere to the Corinthian church, you ought to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Saying something very similar here to Timothy. Timothy, hold fast to sound teaching. Very important. This is my last word to you. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Teach what I teach, because what I'm teaching is not from me, it's from Christ, who is the one who has put all these things into action. And in fact, this is kind of where I would like to wrap up our consideration tonight. Verse 9, when he says, Share in the suffering of the gospel, verse 9, by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here's Paul saying, what did Christ accomplish in his life? Here's the, there's the Christian tradition being passed down. What did Christ accomplish? To reveal that death is being put to death, that the gospel is now shining forth in the person and work of Christ. So any Christianity that strips itself of all those things is not a Christianity that has patterned itself faithfully after Paul or faithfully after other good examples. And in fact, what we have summarized here in the Westminster Catechism is, I would say, in part, a look at and a respect and an honoring of 
the heritage and the tradition and the examples that go before us even from hundreds of years ago. And it's good for us to have that kind of heritage at the forefront of our mind. Because if we teach anything today or advocate for any Christian doctrine today that's new, that's an innovation, it's not going to be a true thing that we say. It's because the thing that we believe as Christians is what the apostles received from Christ, what they taught to their followers, and what we now follow after as faithful disciples. We simply mimic ourselves or pattern ourselves after God who has revealed himself in his words to us. And so there's no need for inventions. There's no need for creativity. There's no need for anything like that. It's pretty simple. Pattern yourself after the apostles who have instantiated their pattern into other living Christians. And those Christians have, through time and by God's providence, patterned themselves even to this day, where you all, in many cases, grew up in the reception of such a wonderful pattern and are now coming to a realization of how rich that is in your life. So I would encourage you to consider that and think about how you might pass that pattern on into another generation of Christians as well. Let's pray. Lord, you are so faithful to have given us witnesses and examples and people who have run the race before us. Lord, we thank you for that investment that they have given into our lives. And Lord, as we consider that duty, that burden that we have now to run the race faithfully, to finish the race well, and to pattern ourselves as someone who is worthy of being followed also. We pray for your grace. Lord, that is a high calling, one which we are insufficient for, unless by your grace you work within us to sanctify us, to renew us, to make us into a new man so that we would be worthy of being followed because we are being shaped into your image. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.